yes, yes, and you don't stop. Cool ID, best rapper, you don't stop. Another fucking hundred fucking dollar for the stop for you and your mind. Come on, yeah, you can never define anything but divine love. I'm a savage beast, <laughs> slightly above average at least. Nah, preference is relative. My references consistently uh, bring you to another vicinity. I hit you with the riddles consistently. Dead in the middle, a little triply. Little did we know that we triggered a fissure in the metaphysical imagery, elegant painted in oil. Love is a flower, see how dissolving the power. And welcome to Savage Beast. Uh, I'm Joe Gallagher, and uh, with me, as always, um, the uh, senator from the state of disrepair. It's Paul McLeod. Uh, Joe, we have some, uh, we have some fun stuff to talk about this week. We do. This is your idea, so you should mention it. It's our 75th episode, so for some reason I chose this as a good number to, uh, commemorate, and, uh, we, uh, are going to do so, uh, by being even more pretentious and elitist than we usually are. Mm -hmm. Um, you and I have each picked a song that we wish to discuss, um, as, uh, in, in a, uh, as highbrow a manner as possible. Um, Mm -hmm. and we thought that actually wouldn't be enough. We wouldn't get enough elitism. Um, so later we're going to call our, uh, buddies podcast favorites, um, Alex, uh, and Taylor and talk to them about, um, uh, two more pretentious songs that they have used their massive intellects and expensive educations to select. There we go. Yeah. I love it. Um, yeah. So Joe, you, uh, I, I mean, I'm just really excited to, um, I don't know. It's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like going to the bathhouse. Like it's just, we're going to let it all out, get, get it as crazy as we can mm-hmm. right here. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be really exciting. Yeah, I love I love to go to the bathhouse. Let me tell you, <laughs> I do, I've been man. to the bathhouse with you. Oh man, it's yeah, it's good to be in a bathhouse. I mean, <laughs> let's let's be real here. What a great house! Is there a better house? It's just. I mean, is there a better part of the house? So why not make the uh, whole house out of it? No, Paul. We once stayed in a house that had a sauna and did not go in it. And that's a real shame. Yeah, I think um, unfortunately our uh, sluggard millennial ways took over, and we just didn't bother with the also that prep. sweet Colorado weed. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yes. <laughs> um, shout out to the Death Star. Yeah. Strain. Whoo! <laughs> I had some problems with the Death Star. Let me tell you. Well, you know, sometimes if you smoke too much too fast after you've been off for a little bit, it can get you. Um, and then we were in that lake that had the hole in it. Uh huh. What? Yeah. The fuck. Why does? <laughs> how does a lake have a hole in it? <laughs> Let's just talk about the songs. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Um, for your consideration, a song that came and went in the nineties. Uh, as a supposed one-hit wonder, and yet its hits are many and magnificent. In 1997, Whitetown released Your Woman. 
Jyoti Prakash Mishra, uh, the uh, one and only member of White Town, um, uh, who has said uh, that being a one-hit wonder is better than being a no-hit wonder. How many how many one-hit wonders actually think that? Do you think there are some who are like, I wish I actually didn't have all this money and and dubious fame? I, I think it's I think the why. You mean how many of them think that? Being a no-hit wonder would be better. Yeah, yeah. Like, like, is Deep Blue something like? It would have be better if we weren't a punchline and I didn't have two hundred thousand dollars or however much they made off that song. Probably some people have significant regrets about like what could have been if they got like one more song. Well, that that's not the choice I'm offering. You you get zero songs or the song you had. Oh well, then of course you choose a one-hit. In that case, I'm sure they would. I'm sure the. 98% would choose being a one-hit wonder unless it had truly fucked their career. <laughs> um, but as I've told the story on this uh, podcast before, um, possibly, um, I uh, uh, Bobby McFerrin was a guest professor uh, at first semester at university and... Um, he fucking hates Don't Worry, Be Happy. And he hates those <laughs> because he's an incredibly, um, you know, successful vocal jazz artist. Mm-hmm. And the fact that this dumbass pop song is his, um, what he's known for, I believe yeah. drives him crazy. So that makes sense. That's like if Radiohead had never, had, had faded into obscurity, mm. but still mm-hmm. made all the same amount of music after Creep. And yes. they probably just would have hated Creep so much. Yes. That would be, they would be very angry one hit wonders. Yeah, no question. Um, not, I mean, just, I mean, can you imagine if today was the Smashing Pumpkins only song? <laughs> I don't know. That might have helped Billy, like, just get over it. Before. Maybe the taste of, of fame uh, ruined him, but who knows? He'd be a fine history professor at Central Michigan College <laughs> right now. Um, Your Paul. woman, Joe. Your woman. Um, Paul, could I be your woman? Uh, I guess what you say is true. Um, I'm asking, you know, am I and am I asking literally or figuratively? One way, at least, the answer is no. I could never be your woman. Mm-hmm. Um, we hear in this song 
at the beginning we had we hear uh, an early century lark the song's signature trumpet sound uh, a seeming vaudeville farce behind this pulsing question uh can i be your woman um the lyrics say i've been waiting for so long to hear the truth but what truth it seems he already knows that he can't be a be a woman um there's an alien beat and a human piano um Mm. and a dialogue both known and unknown between them uh between the (laughs) one who wants and the one who is wanted and the narrator criticizes his beloved's highbrow and Marxist ways, and yet he is full of capitalism's animal desires. Mm. Um, and I think as the love between those two worlds collides, alien, human, uh, Marxist, and uh, neoliberal capitalism, um, mm. we ask, will the project of mankind succeed and there is the breakdown in the song um and we hear uh different sounds uh, one after the other highlighted uh, the voices of aliens video game beats ecstatic bass and then back to the piano and voices and here we have all the ways we deal with the unreality of our lives uh we are small in the universe uh, we are but virtual figures uh, we are drugged uh club goers and finally we are artists and i think the answer is yes uh i could be your woman but i also cannot because i cannot choose my own otherness and there the song takes us (laughs) joe that's an interesting interpretation Uh, it seems you have taken the speaker to be uh, a man speaking ironically Mm. Um, I have. I have. Yeah. I've I've taken it to be uh um an irony speaking with masculinity. <laughs> it's uncharacteristic for the man. Um the uh that's an interesting take, Joe, but I think you have uh neglected to mm. uh pay attention to mm-hmm. the uh the most important factor in artistic interpretation, which I have often espoused, which is the, the artist's intent. Um, mm. And in fact, White Town has spoken about uh, the perspective of this song, mm. which is certainly puzzling. Mm-hmm. And he has, uh, he has suggested that uh, it could be um, uh, just a song about being uh a uh, Trotskyist Marxist in love in the in the eighties and nineties, or that it could be about a man in love with a lesbian. I could never be your woman, mm-hmm. or a gay man in love with a straight man. I could never be your woman, or a woman in love with a bad Marxist who's just a dip- dipshit about everything. Mm. Um, bad Marxists. Yeah, I bad Marxists. They're all over um, Portland. Let me tell you. <laughs> Um, but I think, so you could, as a result of that, take this to be, uh, a sort of, uh, an early example of a trans narrative, uh, with the man singing, I could be, never be your woman. But I think actually this would be uh, simplistic, perhaps even stupid, but, uh, and in fact, what we need to imagine is not a man speaking ironically, 
but that this song has called forth into being mm. a theoretical but real being that is, in fact, all three or all four of those personae at once. Ah. A man in love with a lesbian, a gay man in love with a straight man, or sorry, I should say a straight man in love with a lesbian, a gay man in love with a straight man, a woman in love with a bad Marxist, and a man who's just being ironic. And in fact, this has created not uh, a gender fluid, but a quantum gendered, gendered person. Quantum uh, gendered. <laughs> that too. Uh, embodying, in fact, several mutually incompatible sexualities and genders at once. Not only is this work of art heralded this being, but it has pointed us the way so that we as a species must produce in praxis the physical manifestation of this theorized individual whose properties will be so toxic to the gender binary and the patriarchy that they will mm. spontaneously self-immolate. Hmm. Hmm. Essentially, we need to perform some sort of genderqueer seance to destroy the patriarchy is what I'm saying with this song as a soundtrack. Hmm. Yes. Yes. I feel uh, a strong uh, feminine divinity calling me to this truth. Um, and uh, I could never be that woman who destroys the patriarchy. Um, and yet I long to be. And I hear that in the song. Uh, and I hear the immolation of the self um, that will be required uh, to course. become that woman, maybe in the next life. We are acceptable um, collateral damage in this operation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and then, you know, if we um, follow uh, the artist um, to the next song, on mm -hmm. the album, um, which is called White Town, um, we realize uh, that um, uh, one good song does not beget another. And the, <laughs> the revolution of uh, a woman becoming all uh, shall not happen. Um, in '90s pop music, damn, bro, mm -hmm. that's pretty. That's pretty sad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the guy got four or five albums out of this, so good work for him. He's still going. Uh, yeah, uh, and and I eagerly await the day when a song uh, about Marxism can uh, reach the tops of the charts in major Western countries uh, yet again. He is. I, a uh, I don't think we're very close right he now. He has an album called Socialism, Sexism, and Sexuality, which is yeah. one of my favorite album names of <laughs> It's all pretty time. good. Ah, <laughs> uh, Joe, that's excellent. Do you have any final thoughts on uh, your woman? Uh, no. My woman can speak for herself. <laughs> <laughs> that's excellent. All right, then I propose that we move to... Uh, uh, another uh, deep, rich text. Mm. Um, one that I think will be discussed for quite a while to come. Mm. And I am, uh, if you needed me to specify after that intro, uh, speaking, of course, about McCluskey's Lightsaber Cocksucking Blues.
Saber cocksucking blues, the opening track from McCluskey Do Dallas by McCluskey, um, and uh, I think this is a song where uh, these uh, young intellects, uh, three of them from Wales, um, really I think in a with an impressive economy of language and of uh, chord, um, move through uh, virtually every hot button issue. Uh, relevant to the world today. I can go line by line and point out the way they've done this. Eat what you are while you're falling apart. Uh, that's, of course, uh, through the metaphor of communion, speaking about religion. And it opened a can of worms. We're talking about agribusiness. The gun's in my hand, and I know it looks bad. Gun control. But believe I'm innocent. Criminal justice. Reform. I'm fearful, I'm fearful, I'm fearful of flying. Anxiety. And flying is fearful of me. Terrorism. I covered my eyes when she told me the news. The media. Turning me on with my lightsaber cocksucking blues, which, of course, through the synecdoche of the lightsaber, is speaking of Hollywood. The chorus, uh, by comparison, I find somewhat baffling. Are you coming? Are you coming? Are you coming? Are you coming? He asked four times, and I uh, thought for a while and could not find a referent in the culture at large. But soon enough, we moved to verse two. Nicotine stained on account of her crutch, healthcare, obviously. And I'm making from fucking too much. Here, too, I was a little confused. He says he's aching. He says he's uh, aching from something too much. He even uses the intensifier fucking. It's fucking too much, but fucking too much what? I can't say. I know what I do, but it all points to you, mental health. Uh, Did you sell me to Wanderlust? And, of course, then finance capital. And then we repeat the lyrics from there. So we really got through all the topics uh, relevant to our politics and our culture today in an uh, a very brief uh, space of words. Um, and uh, I think that's why this is one of the true, um, truly incisive uh, works of agitprop uh, in our day to day. Hmm. Mm hmm. Uh, when I hear this song, mm-hmm. uh, I hear um, the uh, famous apocryphal account of Hunter S. Thompson's daily routine uh, where Mm -hmm. he rises at 3 p.m. and begins the day uh, with Chivas Regal and a Dunhill cigarette uh, and 45 minutes later um, begins a solid routine of cocaine um, until at 7 o'clock at lunch uh, he has a Heineken, two margaritas, two cheeseburgers, two orders of fries, a plate of tomatoes, coleslaw, a taco salad, a double order of onion rings, Q 
carrot cake ice cream, bean fritter, Dunhills, another Heineken, cocaine, and for the ride home, a snow cone over which is poured three or four jiggers of more brandy. <laughs> um, and the mm-hmm. reason this song calls that to mind is because I, I, I truly feel um, the madness of excess. Uh, the, the line, flying is fearful of me, uh, when one is uh, facing uh, the howling, unfaceable void uh, with all kinds of um, bravado and indulgence. Um, one reaches randomly um, for um, the uh, culture pop and not from one's life. Um, mm. And um, uh, the destination you arrive at, um, you forget where it is, you forget why you came, uh, and you just say, uh, let's fucking watch Star Wars. Um, <laughs> and Where I'm getting with this is that this song is a bold attempt to lose oneself um, or to to use meaning um, to lose oneself in non-meaning. And Mm. I find it um, alluring and as ephemeral as a daily routine of drugs. But... Uh, nonetheless, um, perhaps the only solution uh, to a life uh, that holds no answers. <sighs> Joe, as ever, your uh, your your yen for meaninglessness comes through, mm. especially at your most intellectual. Mm-hmm. It turns out that. The void is all you worship, Joe. Mm. And I look forward to the day when you, in an occult ritual, call down the wrath of Cthulhu upon the world Mm. as a result of your uh, misguided allegiances. Uh, Cthulhu is the beast for which this podcast is named. (laughs) Uh, Paul, this song is good. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for saying it's good. Uh, in all seriousness, um, uh, it's hard for me to keep headphones on while listening to this song because it rocks that hard. But, uh, uh, ah, yeah. in the listening to the song, which is unlistenable, uh, because all through which one, all vessels Whoa. through which one channels the sound are destroyed by the sound itself. It's true. If I play it over loudspeakers, I end up just like fucking the woofer so hard that it's got mm-hmm. a big hole in it and then it can't play. It's a big problem. Yes, I am uh, um, reminded <laughs> of the uh, Hindu concept of yeah, of trimurti. Good work, personified by the forms of Brahma, uh-huh. Vishnu, and Shiva. Oh, okay, um, you actually were going somewhere with that. <laughs> creation and destruction all in one. That, I, that actually is pretty fair. It probably should have been the way to analyze the song from the beginning. Yeah, it actually, uh, it like, 
like freshman Hinduism is a, a good approach for this song. And perhaps Absolutely. Um, uh, all you need. All you need. All you need is the love of Shiva. Mm. Mm. Uh, joining us uh, on the hot mic next to Paul in Tucson, Arizona, um, uh. we have Alex Parisi with his super elite Premier League song. My Only Swerving mm. by L1011. swerving <laughs> a song with no words uh-huh but in this song the song will write the words mm. Mm. it could be about anything you know you wake up we wake up every morning put our bare feet on the ground look ourselves in the mirror and ask ourselves what's why are we here What's our value? What's our brand? <laughs> especially for a brand video. Uh, especially uh, true when it comes to mind. Uh, this song that's has a electronic yet soulful vibe. Mm-hmm. Uh, repetitive. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you emerge from your apartment go through your ritual of making coffee and you pan out from the city that you live in and you pan out but in a tilt shift focus <laughs> slightly sped up and you see busy people doing busy things creative people creating mm-hmm. boats traveling coming in coming out uh, a layer upon layer and complexity upon complexity, uh, looping and repeating. Uh, and every every single person, every single passerby has a story, has a brand, has something that they're contributing to this cluster of activity that's going on. And as a creator, what are you adding to that value? something that we all need to ask ourselves right my only swerving is the soundtrack of 
this life. It's a soundtrack of whatever you want it to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, every brand video that I've this song has been featured in <laughs> impacts me in that way. Are there many? There are many. Oh, right. Document documentaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh yeah, I know uh, Helvetica. Uh, yes. A favorite of the bourgeoisie. Yes. This is the song of life. This is the song of creativity. The song of bustling. The song of uh, doing it all over again and again and again. Yeah? Yeah. All right. That's how it impacts me. So, yeah. Joe, your thoughts. It sounds the like you waves. want to say something. The <laughs> waves crash into me over and over. Uh, the song repeats. And I repeat, but I wear down each time, <laughs> worn a little more by the pull of the lunar tides upon Earth's single ocean. Um, yeah, well, I'm not surprised that you, you would both focus on the aesthetic qualities of this song and not its essentially classist uh, nature. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, you may think this is just a pretty song, uh, uh, beautiful even mm-hmm. um, combining you know some uh, 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 you know clever rhythms on a on a catchy melody uh, a, a peppy uh, rhythm and uh, all those things but what you fail to see is the way that the way that the song in starting out with the people's instrument the guitar and then devolving uh, it to the point where at the mm-hmm. end it's given way to the violin uh, an upper class, uh, indeed, uh, an oppressive instrument, um, I think, is uh, frankly disgusting. But um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> in fact, I think we would all note that the aged, uh, who are uh, always reactionary, um, prefer the violin to the guitar. Um, and there's really not much more to say after that. Paul, I'd argue that. It's a beautiful disgust. <laughs> uh, one which is meant to prompt uh, alarms, the echoes of which are heard around one minute in, alternating mm-hmm. between channels. And those alarms say you will be rescued, but when you deserve it. Uh, <laughs> and once, uh, once you are, then the beat will drop out. Mm-hmm. And you'll find yourself in the hands of, of paranormal paramedics um, and you ask, is this a mellow p- plane crash? How sublime would it be to survive, to know you were going to survive as the plane went down? Would it sweeten life or would it dull it? It's hmm. a good question. It should be noted that this song is done by a duo. Mm-hmm. Mm. One man plays double guitar, mm-hmm. pretty much does all the work. <laughs> The other guy plays the beats. Ah, so it's in fact a metaphor for class conflict. If you yes, think about it that way, and a metaphor, knowing that one man mostly does all the work, uh, and I think he has the drummer here uh, for really show purposes. So <laughs> it can be a, a rock band at a show uh, and 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 perform because if it was just him doing the beats and having some cymbals on his knees, he would just be a street performer. Mm-hmm. But here he is playing two instruments at the same time, looping together in this musical masturbation. And the thing about masturbation is 
as enjoyable as it is, it's mm-hmm. enjoyable by yourself. Well, yes. <laughs> Proceed. Or is it yes. more <laughs> enjoyable as a duo? And that's what's being challenged here and what's being presented. Mm-hmm. So if I were here mm-hmm. masturbating in front of Paul. If. If. When. <laughs> me playing double guitar, <laughs> looping upon looping. and Are you trying to tell me you have two dicks? Perhaps, <laughs> but, but but I what I'm asking is how how will you encourage that with your with your under with your beats with your how how can you be the drummer in this, mm. in this scenario <laughs> or how how are you doing it in the uh, in the multiverse where this is happening for all things are happening yeah um, I'm doing it by bringing this back to uh, the essential theme of class conflict. I think what we need to do here is hear from the voices of the, the proletariat. In fact, possibly even the lumpen proletariat. Nothing could be uh, more prole than I think um, YouTube comments. And mm. so I've gathered some from the YouTube page for this song. Oh, I have not looked at this. Which I think you will all enjoy. Um, so uh, first of all, um, I think uh, Tika Mu um, was trying very hard, perhaps too hard, uh, when she said um, a year ago, I first heard this song while injecting 10,000 heroines in the dumpster behind Taco Bell. I OD'd and was rushed to the hospital where Dr. Senpai played this song for me while helping me turn my life around. We are now married and have five adopted Siamese children, five heads, one body. I owe this song my whole life, and I'm Classic. so moved to tears every time I hear it that I literally die and need to be resuscitated. Please wow. give me upvotes. Mm-hmm. Commitment. I, I would, <laughs> did you upvote? Uh, fuck no. Um, that's, that's, uh, mm. uh, that's submitting to the bourgeois uh, system of values to upvote. Mm. Um, anyway, uh, another critic, uh, Chaz Larkham, uh, nine months ago noted, I, I almost... <laughs> my uncle yeah complete dick right um i almost cringed at the first part when it did three of the four chords of pop in order but then the song actually started um (laughs) i think it's very important that we keep this sort of uh uh uh, actually i think that charles larkham just for that comment should probably be tarred and feathered and then burned at the stake um he also says uh should have had more faith in an experimental math rock group showing once again uh that he too is classist um, lastly, um, well, not quite lastly, but are you all aware of where the name of the song comes from, the reference it's making? This is true, actually. No. Okay. Joe, you? I'm, I'm not aware of anything. Yeah. Not anything. Uh, so once again, the, uh, the proletariat has much to teach us because I learned this from Trinity Rourke's, um, uh, well, maybe it wasn't them. No, it was somebody else. Uh, anyway, um, the, uh, one of the comments on YouTube uh, observed that this is a poem by, uh, shit, what is his name? William Stafford, I believe, uh, which is called Traveling Through the Dark, published in 1967. And I'm going to read it to you in its entirety. Traveling through the dark, I found a deer dead on the edge of the Wilson River Road. 
It is usually best to roll them into the canyon. That road is narrow. To swerve might make more dead. By glow of the taillight, I stumbled back of the car, and stoned by the heap, a doe, a recent kill, and stood by the heap, I'm sorry, a doe, a recent killing. She had stiffened already, almost cold. I dragged her off. She was large in the belly. My fingers touching her side brought me the reason. Her side was warm. Her fawn lay there waiting, alive, still, never to be born. Beside that mountain road, I hesitated. The car aimed ahead its lowered parking lights. Under the hood purred the steady engine. I stood in the glare of the warm exhaust turning red. Around our group, I could hear the wilderness listen. I thought hard for us all, my only swerving, then pushed her over the edge into the river. Yeah. Hmm. Now, having heard that tale, knowing where the song comes from, I would like to direct you to the to the story of Miss Ms. Brazown Casey Brown, one month ago on YouTube. Mm. This comment has been edited. Mm. In 2011, uh, I spent seven days in the hospital, and two of those days, I was in a coma from diabetic ketoacidosis, DKA. Mm. I am a type one diabetic. After waking up from the coma with my family all around me, I stayed in the hospital for five more days, and my family had to leave because they lived out of town. I never turned my room TV on. I just listened to Pandora, uh, Pandora and found this song and band. It gave me strength to move forward, and it also made me thankful for my life that was spared. 360 days later, I gave birth to my gorgeous baby boy. And with both, both of us here walking this earth and living was a true miracle. I thank my friend who found me unconscious in my bed, who saved my life. But this song truly pushed me through the toughest battle of my life. Every time I listen to it, it takes me back. I listen to it as a reminder that almost seven years ago, I almost passed away, and my baby boy wouldn't be here either. This song is very special to me. Thank you, L1011. I, uh, I find the coincidence of the title of this song and that story hmm. mm, too much to dismiss as mere coincidence. Hmm, in fact. Fake news. Mm. <laughs> His name was also L10. <laughs> <laughs> but is perhaps coincidence the mother of unborn... Dear humans. Divine <laughs> providence. <laughs> with the father being the double guitar. Ooh. No the question. answer is complicated. The answer begins with just a plucking of the bass. Mm, 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 just a couple notes. Mm -hmm. And stopping there and adding another another riff, yes. another melody. And eventually you pan out and it's like Charlie Brown and his friends at a dance party and you view each one of them and each each member only has a couple moves. Some of them have clouds of dust around them. Some of them have clouds of dust, but y you look at each one, it, they just repeat uh, the same two steps, but all of them slightly different. Mm-hmm. All of them a little bit varied, and together it looks incredible. Thank you, Alex. I had never considered the true depth of the Charlie Brown dance animation. This song is basically mm. the Charlie Brown dance party. Mm. 
Hmm. Well, uh, Joe, unless you have anything else to say, I'd like to conclude with, I think, the deepest of the YouTube comments from one Trinity Rourke 10 months ago. Uh, I wish to conclude after your conclusion. All right. Uh, what he says is, uh, and I think this is probably the most efficient way he could have sought an answer to his question. Anyone know how I can get in touch with the artist? I wrote a rap to this song, and I'd really like to perform it. Ha ha. Can we get that rap? <laughs> I think I think we probably could. Part two. I think it's possible. I think the rap to this song uh, is no doubt an ancient Sanskrit mantra. No, no question. Written thousands of years ago, pure enlightenment in language. Yeah, when he says he wrote it, I'm sure what he means is that the god Anubis channeled through him as Yahweh did with Moses mm. to transmit the ancient words to the modern day. You know, I would be on board with that if Anubis wasn't an Egyptian god. <laughs> but of course he is. Yes. Uh, and so I find myself where we are at the end of this song uh, when we've aged, as you've said, to a time of uh, melancholy regret. Uh, we find our insights no longer unique to anyone. And all we can hear is the beauty of our own funeral march. And there, all our YouTube comments are held up in front of us. And all mm. the YouTube comments we didn't make. And uh, that is the pyre on which uh, our uh, mortal flesh is burned, uh, leaving an eternal, uh, eternal 24-hour uh, YouTube video of blackness. There are no YouTube comments that I didn't make. Hmm. Hmm. And then... You will end up in purgatory, my friend. YouTube content <laughs> purgatory. And only when I played that song did everything you say just come to light <laughs> in the most beautiful way. In fact, oh. any voiceover to this song. Thank you, Alex. Thank Thanks you for whatever you're saying. Mm. I've enjoyed yes. this conversation. To the work of L1011. Uh, honestly, um, I think it's good we've talked four times longer than the song itself. Alex, I, you know, this Does the is song a, end? <laughs> I don't think it ever ends. It's just, just a it's just a constant Oh, I I found no ending as the or sun sets and rises. Uh I uh you know, Alex, this is our 75th podcast. And I would ask you what your favorite moment of the podcast has been so far, but it's obviously been this segment. So there's Clearly. no need to ask. No, no question. Yeah, I can't wait to listen. And mm. yeah, <laughs> again mm. and again. Yeah. Okay, I think we can we can find a way to transition to the next segment. At some <laughs> <later>. <laughs> uh, oh man, hopefully it's as fun to listen to as that was to record. I actually kind of like the song. Yeah. No, it's a great song. It's pretty good. <laughs> Unfortunately, it has to be a prop for us being yeah. dickheads. <laughs> On the phone, um, all the way from rum-soaked Brooklyn, 
uh, it's the defender of uh, man and film alike, Taylor Sean. I don't know. I'm just going to say Taylor has a really good job where he's a nice guy who helps out the poor and downtrodden of society. That's how I'm going to introduce Taylor. Let's Mm. listen to his song, I Should Watch TV, by David Byrne and St. Vincent as Love This Giant is the name of the song. Gentlemen, good evening. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> uh, the crack the Kraken is strong tonight. Release the Kraken. So that was I Should Watch TV by David Byrne and St. Vincent, although it's really just by David Byrne. And the reason I say that is I was lucky enough, uh, my amazing wife, God, years ago, bought me tickets, us tickets, to go see the tour of them. And they were very upfront about which songs were hers, which songs were his. And even though they sang on both, he was like, yeah, this this one's just me. Um, and what I love about it is that when you guys asked me for the most pretentious song I know, and I said, well, does it have to be good or bad? And you said, eh, either, doesn't matter. Um, you know, David Byrne is, is a goddamn musical genius. And he can also be very obtuse at times. But this time, he's, he's pretty much just across the bow being like, yeah, they told me I should do this, and um, it is the devil, and it's for the dumb people. And if you like it, you are the dumb people. Um, he could not be more clear and that this is like, I tried it, it's not for me, and it's going to kill us all. But being David Byrne, of course, he does it in a way that is still very melodic, very addictive. You can get so into it, with it, into it without realizing that he is point-blank calling you out if you are one of the many, many, many. <laughs> Uh, as a as a card carrying elitist, I feel like this should speak to me really strongly, but I actually have a slightly different interpretation than you. Um, Proceed. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that David Byrne does find it totally alien. I agree that he doesn't like slip into it. So yeah, I should watch TV. Uh, is the the metaphor he should you know go like do the random stupid shit that regular people do, and then later he brings sports into it as another sort of example. I feel like of the same thing. Um, but, you know, he does have lyrics in the third and uh, I think, you know, um, uh, summary stanza. You know, uh, uh, everybody's in this hotel lobby. I'm blending in here. Yes, I am. I feel it moving in my arms and fingers. Touch me and feel my pain. So I'm not going to say that he totally got there. That, um, 
partaking in the communion of the common man's discourse uh, brought him all the way to a sort of shared solidarity with um, all the people dumber than him, which is, you know, let's just not beat around the bush here. I, um, <laughs> sorry, I, I'm being, I'm trolling. Um, but this he, is the pretentious episode, so go for yeah, it. Yes, yes. But he sort of, he sort of gets there. He starts to feel it. He can understand at least the attraction of the communion around these uh, things that are in and of themselves perhaps not worthy, but when they are shared with others, gain a sort of uh, spiritual currency. When Paul insults um, David Byrne here, he insults Walt Whitman himself. <laughs> I didn't insult David Byrne. Um, <laughs> t- anyway, I feel like he it's, it's a little bit more nuanced than he just tried it and he didn't like it. That's all I had to say. I would just like to say that while your interpretation is completely valid from a critical perspective, uh, he point blank said at the concert that like, yeah, people told me I should watch TV. And so I wrote this song about it. I, I think when he <laughs> talks about sports, when he's talking about it, he's talking about everything that is on TV. It's not a metaphor. Yeah, yeah. It's just oh, no, straight up like this is the marketplace. And I would bring your attention to the, the – I think he starts to feel it for a little bit, but then he steps back because the final part is maybe someday we can stand together, not afraid of what our eyes might see. Maybe someday understand them better, the weird things inside of me. So the, mm-hmm. the idea being that like maybe literally we can stand together as opposed to just all – watching you know the common ideas marketplace that he i feel like he flatly rejects um that's just me joe arbitrate when you discuss this song (laughs) you insult walt whitman himself (laughs) as david Byrne said the title uh love the giant came from walt whitman's song of myself um, many uh, lines of which are uh, um, recontextualized within this very song. Um, he thinks he's take. He thinks Walt Whitman takes the idea of watching other people's lives on television to a more cosmic place as he walks around Brooklyn and New Jersey and becomes multitudes. Um, Joe, how high are you? Release the Kraken! Joe's not high. Uh, I'm high. I'm a high as I'm on the third story of my house. So, uh, those bl- pretty, are those blinds high. working? The blinds. The blinds are open, <laughs> yet I cannot see. When Marshall McLuhan uh, <laughs> talked about the medium is the message. Yeah. He said that uh, a light bulb uh, is itself something that changes uh, an environment by allowing people to come together in the dark. And so he sees television as the same way. For instance, a newscast about a heinous crime, maybe less about the story itself and more about the change in public attitude uh go off king and um i think that when david byrne watches tv he follows uh marshall McLuhan um in uh seeing less of the content and more uh the actual act of other people who should be alien to him um instead um coming through like a brother uh, like yes. like him, 
and he he sees that this medium of television is more important than what he is watching on it. So, Joe, I feel like in a um, in an admirably more pretentious way, you have taken my side in the debate. Mm, I think I've taken this. A new, you have you synthesized the thesis and antithesis of our argument honestly i i feel like i'm being i'm such an elitist here that i didn't pay attention to anything either of you said <laughs> uh, well that is the victory condition for this debate joe so you were the winner so let's let's end it on this i have had the fortune to see this song performed live twice mm. Uh, mm-hmm. I saw it on the original tour, and it was it was wonderful. And he gave the explanation of the song beforehand, and it was full of energy. And then I got to see it again recently uh, when he had his tour uh, in Queens. I saw it at the uh, the tennis stadium up in Queens. And I will say this: he was angrier but livelier uh, when I saw the original version. Obviously, he's now older, but. Um, he was he was active in a lot of the other songs I saw at this concert. In this one, it was much more resigned to like I am being processed, and by the end of it, I am you know I am the Borg. I am I am just like everyone else, and I, I don't mean that just performance wise, but literally not only were there strobes and everything, but at the end of the number, everyone who was with him on stage had all disappeared into the curtains, and he himself there was a strobe light off stage, uh, stage left. And it was like he was walking into the screen, but in this case, literally off the stage, and the whole everything just went black. So it's for what it's worth. When he first did it, he was angry and lively, but it was full of energy. And when he did it six years later, he was much more like, "And and now I'm gone because I I am you, you are me, and that also means I am no more individuality. I have disappeared into the screen." That speaks to the deep nuance, I feel, of the work that even its own creator could find different ways to interpret it. Um, he's like Ter- but, uh, he's like Terrence Malick, but you don't want to slap him. Nope. Oh, uh, well, I want to slap Terrence Malick, like, but like while we're making love. Um, <laughs> I bet you because he's been a bad boy. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, um, this... Uh, I think I feel like where we ultimately end up is that this is yet another instance of David Byrne not narrating his own experience, but narrating his experience of other people's experience of the culture as he tries to uh, sort of pull out the weird caricature of other people that he sees as he moves around the world. And it's uh, it's a gift to us all because um, we can recognize something in it while at the same time finding it strange and new. A pleasure as always. Mm, yes, a pleasure. Or is it pain? <laughs> no, it's pleasure. It's pleasure. Uh, David Byrne is a greater elitist than any of us could ever be. Uh, he's mm-hmm. made elitism into uh, wealth, fame, and legacy, and becoming one of the coolest people uh, that currently walks the earth. Um, and forever, he will certainly never die. Uh, and uh, can just become more and more angular as he appears on the cover to this album. Um, and I'd like to close by reading the entirety of Walt Whitman's Song of Myself over the next two hours. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go to the bathroom. So just, just, you just keep going. I'm listening. Don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, Taylor. Yes. You recently went to a concert. This is that true. Was uh, uh, 
more for the masses. That's very true. <laughs> Tell us about it and why so, you bought a track jacket at that concert. <laughs> yes. You bought a track jacket? Oh, I totally did. Yeah, it's amazing. Sweet. So I had the pleasure, uh, and I mean that non-ironically, of seeing Garbage, the band, uh, and no story about Garbage can be complete without uh, the tale of 1999 uh, being in Ted's car, our good friend Ted, and me being like... Ted is the ghost of this podcast. We've brought him up like 20 times, and he will never be on the podcast. He'll, He'll never, never do it. He will never, the never podcast. <laughs> anyway, so uh, this was their first album that was playing, and I, I, I liked it, but I couldn't recognize it. I was like, is this garbage? And he goes, yes, and he hits eject, pulls out the CD, and goes, and yes, and just throws it out of his car. Like, we're going like 45 miles an hour down the road, and... <laughs> what I what I really respect about that is that it was total dedication to the gag. Um, mm -hmm. Traffic rules, none of that was, you know, whether he liked the music or not, still unclear to this day. Um, but it's one of the best gags I've ever witnessed in my life. And it has nothing to do with this story, just also happens to involve garbage. So this was uh, Garbage 2.0, it's the name of the tour. But it, the idea is that it's also, they're doing that album. Um, mm -hmm. I was perhaps misled. Um, I knew that was the concept and I was all in on it because that is my favorite garbage album. I'm only aware of two. I'm sure there's more, but part of how, part of how they retained their identity was also kind of to drop off the map kind of completely because they refused to play the recording studios. Uh, sorry. Um, the record albums, record labels. I've been drinking the record labels game and <laughs> changed their sound. And so they went not indie, but they definitely, their other albums didn't get the release patterns. I should really look into them because I love the first two. But anyway, 2.0 was my jam. And I thought they were going to play the album in order. Uh, they did not. But they did play every single song. And then they played all of the deep cuts, many of which I did not know. And they also played uh, the Bond theme. And the justification for that was that they wrote and performed the Bond theme while 2.0 was happening, which is like a fair enough. Um, but what was amazing about it what was really great um, is to see a band that was both ahead of its time and completely of its time. And what do I mean by that? Is that obviously the songs all hit. I mean, they were on so many soundtracks, so many ads. Um, you know, the album was a great commercial and critical success. But to listen to it, God, what, I think it, this is the, it's either the 15th or the 20th anniversary tour. I think it's the 20th anniversary tour. Yeah, it has to be. 20th. Yeah, right, math. Um, just so many of the songs, it's like, wow, these songs have not aged a day. Like, they, ju they just haven't. Like, about when I grow up, I'll be stable. I think I'm paranoid. Um, my medication, like, j and, and the sound of it as well, even though it's very 90s. Like, the more, the more te technological, the more you feel like you're trapped in a digital cage. I was just like, wow, this, none of this has gotten old at all. And... On top of that, that Shirley Mason, Manson or Mason? Manson. Manson. Um, God, she looks great. She sounds great. She is still a rock goddess, still pitching fits on stage while at the same time just being a complete fucking boss. Um, and to see a band after all this time where it's like, yes, it's their, not their reunion tour because they never broke up, but it's definitely a nostalgia tour, but one that... One that I, I the audience felt like it was ready for it. it, it you know, it's... It's like when um, Incredibles 2 came out this year and it was so long for something people loved so much 
that it was one of those things where like almost regardless of the quality of the movie everyone's like yeah yeah i'd be down for that it's it's been a long time um and similarly with this this isn't a a band that's been trotting out as far as i know um the act every two years and we've gotten old um well, we have gotten old but the act hasn't gotten old it, like the whole audience just was like yes we're here for it we're ready to hear it um and it was also and then I'll, I'll stop rambling and open the floor. I thought it was very interesting to just to be with this audience of, for the most part, everyone was either people my age, plus or minus, and you could definitely tell, like, who had kids, who didn't. Um, hmm. and, and, and what I mean by that is that the, the parents were, like, very happy to be there. They were tired, but they were just like, yeah, let's do this. Not like we're going to party all night, but very excited. Versus the people who didn't have kids, they were more, very much more like, yeah, I don't know how many, you know, this is like my eighth show this year, but I'm looking forward to this. Like, it was still a good vibe, but you could definitely tell there was a, there was two separate nations there. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I uh, I haven't been to a lot of sort of um, shows for bands that are like not considered super relevant in the current moment. Mm-hmm. You know, like most of the shows I go to, well, I guess I guess the big ex- exception would be uh, Neutral Milk Hotel. And uh, that's like a different thing. I don't know. I guess my question for you is, um, what did it feel like to you to behold the passing of time in the visages on stage and off as you went there? Was it like, oh, cool, I'm with my people. We've all grown a little bit, but we're all still together. Or was it like shit man the void claws ever closer uh, or something else i don't know right uh the best the best way i can describe it is i i felt those divergent reactions at the two last shows i went to uh and as a mm-hmm. parent of a three-year-old just seeing any show at all is a big deal um but a month ago ish uh mid-september i got to see david byrne at um the 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 tennis stadium in queens a very different venue than king's theater outdoor much more stadium like and i want to be clear here that the i'm putting the show's quality aside because they were both great shows could not have been more different um but there was something very mercenary about the experience at the queen stadium and i don't know if it's just like bigger crowd and so as a result there's many people who are just there because they know a guy and they have the perks but the out the outside of the Queen's Stadium, it's a great idea in theory, is that they have all these, they're not food trucks, but they're definitely food tents that are all like uh, Brooklyn. Yeah, they do this for the U.S. Open there now. Yeah. I've heard about this. Yeah, yeah. So it's all these trendy or upcoming restaurants and all these little food tents beforehand, which again, I like. I, I love that in, in theory. And love to I, eat I, food in a tent. Well, and then and you go and you get you know you get your beer, you get your drink, whatever you're all talking, and then you go into the show. Uh, we we arrived somewhat on time because again, parents, um, which meant that we'd miss sort of the pre-show. But there was something very like, come do this communal whatever experience and drop one hundred and sixty dollars or whatever it is. Yeah, and obviously Hell that yeah. that's not uncommon with any concert, right? Like, I mean, I I bought the fucking track jacket at Garbage and it was not cheap. Um, but to answer your question, there was Give something. Give all your money to the past. Right. <laughs> I, I, and obviously David Byrne is an older artist than Garbage, and he's been doing music for longer, so it's going to be an older crowd, a, a mix. But there was just – I'm trying to put my finger on it here. I felt no, much, no, no. much older and sort of a little disgusted at the Queen Stadium show 
just because it's like, oh, here's my artisanal chicken fingers, and here's like this cocktail that was designed for the show, and but I'm sitting yeah. on this stone bench, and he, and again, the, it's because that's the least punk rock thing you could possibly put together. Really? And... Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And again, I want to be clear, like this is not David Byrne's fault. He put on a great show, like, um, uh-huh. and maybe maybe if I had been seeing Metallica there or something where it was very loud and very arena rock but outdoor maybe that would have changed my opinion on it but it was one of these weird things where when people ask me like well how was it i was like well the show itself was great but the experience like <sighs> yeah no i feel you on that yeah um i you, mean part of this is that's the that's the encroachment of capitalism like i like capitalism more or less but like it's gross when it starts getting into your art and like part that. of this is, Go is ahead, new york becoming like a 1960s themed like playground for the rich mm-hmm. i mean you yeah, know, so many of the venues there and the experiences there are just about like, ah, remember when this place was punk rock. Right. Um, and certainly mm-hmm. garbage, and I think it was it was more no alarming that. that that same experience was happening in Queens. Like, I expect that in Madison Square Garden. I expect that at Terminal 5, mm-hmm. uh, the garbage venues of Terminal Manhattan. Is a shit you know, box. that's that's where they're going. That's where they're going. Um, but not not at like an outdoor converted tennis stadium in Queens, which is a very cool idea. But God, um, but I did not have yeah. that experience at King's Theater, even though we probably dropped the same amount of money if you add up the track jacket and everything else. I mean, it's um, David Byrne's fault that New York is so cool. He's one of uh, several yeah. several hundred <laughs> people. He's in the top like two hundred people, um, right? In terms of you know, he was one of he was probably Talking Heads and Sonic Youth were the two bands uh, that made CBGBs the right. Most important and, music and, venue, uh, Blondie. Uh, yeah, Blondie. Blondie. Yes, right. of course. Yes. So um, comp- compare that. Compare that to King's Theater, which I'd never been to before. It's a recently renovated space, and it's just it's gorgeous, and not like modern gorgeous. They really tried to make it look like as much of a recreation of an old school Broadway music hall as they could, and man, it it looked good. It looked really good, and even though the drinks were overpriced, but it was like. You know, it's like I just got a, a Jameson and, and diet. I, I wasn't like, I'm not getting a fancy cocktail. But I don't know if it was the energy of the crowd or the fact that, like, I I think... Well, wait, did you have seats at the King's Theater? We did. But we... Ha- okay. I mean, I had I had spots on the bench at Queen's, and I had actual seats at King's Theater. I don't... There really isn't any standing room only in King's Theater. It's not that kind of venue. Gotcha. Even though people were on their feet for most of the show. Most of the show. Gotcha. Okay. Um, but I, I, I think... I'm not going to say uniquely because obviously you guys have seen so many more shows than I have. However, I have seen a lot, like a lot of '90s acts way past their prime, and the vast majority. You've probably seen more you're of those. The, than you're I the have. expert on that. This show. I, well, let me tell you something. I don't recommend it. Um, uh, I, this is perhaps the second time ever that I saw an act from those days, and I didn't leave profoundly depressed. Um, and what do I mean by that? I I've seen live live. I've seen enjoy that pumpkin show. (laughs) Yeah, I know exactly. (laughs) All right. So I, I saw the smashing pumpkins reunion show, which is not, not the one that Joe saw was space Billy Pope, but I saw Ah. the other one, uh, where it was everyone except it was just him and Jimmy. And then Jimmy quit by the time I saw it, but it was still called, Yeah, yeah, that's, you know, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Jimmy Jimmy was at that show. He was. Nah, yeah. well, whatever. Anyway, continue. All right. So I saw that. I saw Live. I saw Collective Soul. I saw um, Soul Asylum. I saw Eve Six. I saw Everclear. I, I've just seen a lot of bands way past their prime. Oh, and Presidents United States of America. And that's the My only God. one. Un- oh, man. Well, wait. But that's the only one until Garbage that didn't depress that's awesome. me. 
that didn't depress yeah, me well, because when I saw the maybe it helps that they were always a fun pop band basically and not ju- and not just that but since they were on a pure this is, we're gonna bring it home here they were on a pure nostalgia kick because it was the tour where they're like listen we're just gonna play our first album top to bottom and then we'll play a few uh, <laughs> other yes. stuff but like we're, like we're just playing it every track yes. in order. Thank you so much for coming out. We cannot believe people still pay to see us. And on the one hand, that's, that's cool. On the other hand, who know who who has ever listened to the Pot USA first album front to back and loves all the tracks? Wait, uh, this this yeah, guy anyone, right any, here. Anyone who wasn't forbidden from looking listening to good music in the mid nineties? Oh shit! <laughs> Maybe I missed that one. I just assumed they were the one song, and that was it. They really weren't. It was. It's a fun okay. album, and especially like the obscure um, Joe. You remember like Old Man on the Back Porch? Yeah. Yeah, so when they play that song, okay. the crowd went fucking nuts. <laughs> and All right, I retract my snark. <laughs> Apparently, I was wrong. Boom. Well, but just just the fact that they were in such good humor about it, right? Um, and the difference with that show and this one, um, because that one, it was a great time, but it was just them on stage. There was there were really no lights. There, I mean, there were lights, but there wasn't any like designed element of the show. It was just sort of like, hey, thank you so much for coming out. This is crazy. Um, and this one definitely had like sort of a Tron aesthetic. They were definitely embracing that, you know, overproduced, but like it's organic thing that garbage is. Um, for me, it was more to see a band and they're still in good health. They still appear to like each other. They still sound good. And they're very much like, we know why we're here. We're not going to be sad about it. We're going to embrace the fact that so many people still love this album and it's so important to them that they're all here. So fuck it. Let's go. Let's do it. And that to be to have that and to have that vibe of pretty much everyone in the audience, again, either with kids or without, but they're all here because like this band and this album is a very special place and time for them. And so as a result, it felt much more like a celebration and less a death march, which let me tell you, Soul Asylum back in 08 or whenever I saw them, <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Maybe it was 2010. I don't know, but it was it was depressing. Whatever it was. So I mean, Soul Asylum is a really they're they're an indie. They were like an indie band in the 80s. So yeah, they are. Uh, they are. They were farther past their prime than these other bands. Well, but they but all... he's saying eight or ten years ago. So actually, it might have been about the. Oh, there you but... go. All right. Oh, they, yes. Yeah. Good. I, I mean, I guess the point is they had enough songs that they could have easily filled 40 minutes with like, yeah, let's do it. And it's clear they all hated each other, and they were just like. Let's get through our contractually obligated music and get the fuck out of here. <laughs> well, you know, also there the difference might, I mean, who knows? Maybe it comes down to this, maybe not. But, like, I bet Garbage made enough money that they haven't really had to have real jobs in the time since. You know, like, I think that's find right. Some, I think some, that's right. Some job in the music industry. Soul Asylum is probably all, like, uh, accountants and software engineers and shit now. Mm. I, that sounds right. Um, especially when you consider how many licensing deals they got out of 2.0. And I mean, they, they were able to say, like, look, we're not going to change our sound, even if it meant they got dropped uh, or not promoted or whatever you want to call it. And they're still together, as far as I know. I don't think any band members have been replaced. And also to, to have a... Actually, I'm, I'm going to need your guys' musical knowledge on this. I am only aware of two pop rock bands that made it big in the 90s that had a female singer, frontman, for whatever, um, garbage and no doubt are the only two i'm really aware of and if you define it as it has to be a chick in front of a band then that might be true you're obviously like you're cheryl crows and you're a lot of more sets who are just a woman i'm i'm thinking like the equivalent of a freddie mercury we're like yes there's queen but once freddie mercury left like yeah they're queen but no they're not 
You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, or yeah. David Byrne with the talking heads I mean, when they tried to be like, you know, no talking, just head. And that didn't really work out. Um, but there, cramp, there's only cramp. really two that I can think of where it is a rock band, but female lead and Cran- cranberries. Okay. So there's three. Yeah. Again, this is why I'm, I'm asking. And hole. Hole. Although hole. Yeah. Hole is well, a more complicated. Courtney Love is famous to this day. Yes. I think they count. Oh yes. Right. Hole would not exist yeah. without Courtney Love. That is true. Yeah. Yes. This is all true. Okay, so one of the one of the big ones, but I, but to yes. me, I guess the one of a it's few. a minority for yeah. sure. And to see her just still sound and look so good, and I don't, I'm not just physically, but like <laughs> her performance aura, like she just okay. owned that fucking stage, and everyone was into it in my venue. So, whatever jacked up Ticketmaster StubHub fees I had to pay, because try as I might, even though I logged in. Again, dad complaint, but like you log in right when Ticketmaster's like the minute the tickets are on sale and they're all sold out. And it's like, I'm seeing garbage fucking 2.0. How is that possible? Like, I'm not seeing Lady Gaga. I'm not seeing. It's I, It's impressive that that situation has managed to suck the exact same way since the very beginning of selling tickets on the Internet. And there is no sign of it ever changing. Uh <laughs> Every time you want to buy tickets for a show, the minute it goes out, if it if there's any demand over uh, whatever is available, uh, you will just be sitting there in no server response hell. And it, I, I mean, again, this is a complaint time around, but it's like the tickets themselves were reasonably priced. But by the time I was done with it, it was like, this better be a good show for how much I spent for these. Because <laughs> like all, all above what the ticket face said. Um, Anyway, I would say it's a great show. You guys should check it out. But it was literally the last night they were playing in North America. So you can't. Yeah, because I only realized the tour was going on after you mentioned it. And then I looked up its past dates. and I was like, oh, shit, Tempe. Uh, my wife would have loved that one. That would have been an actual concert we could have gone to together. Fuck. Oh, well. Enjoy the Smashing Pumpkins together. <laughs> I, we will. I, you know, honestly, I'm looking forward to the experience of sitting outside the venue all day, uh, almost as much as I am actually going to it, just because I haven't done that since like, you know, 2002 I, or something. I should say that there uh, are, um, you can watch the entire Garbage 2.0 concert uh, in at least four different venues on YouTube. So there you go. And also, yeah, Joe, for what it's worth, the times. For what it's worth, based on both the pictures that you sent and I've seen in your review, like, I think I'd actually probably really enjoy the show you saw, just not the show I saw that we saw way back when. They oh, feel like yeah, very different Paul, experiences. Paul's going to have a good time. I'm, I'm just trolling him. And that's, Absolutely. That's, I'm here to be trolled. That's okay. nostalgia. And I bought a track jacket for $90, and I regret nothing. It's gorgeous. Oh, my God. It was $90. <laughs> and the best part is is that like we got in line because the opening band, we got a song in. We're like, no, forget it. So we get in line because the longest line at the re- the venue is for the merch, not for not to get in, not to buy drinks. It's just the merch. During the show, the line is that long? During the opening act that no one cared about. Damn. Okay. So well, that's why these bands go on these tours. Right. Go ahead. Right. Well, it, we, we waited like <laughs> yeah, 30, yeah. 30, 40 minutes in this merch line, but I was with friend. You know, we were with my wife and other friends, and we're we're drinking and whatever. And the whole time, it's like, man, if that jacket was just like twenty dollars cheaper, I'd get it. And we got up there, it's like, man, if that jacket was ten dollars cheaper, and by the time I finished my drink, it's like, fuck it, I'm buying it, because like, it just they looks probably great. this. You know what? Honestly, what a good merch manager would do is he would put dummy people in the line to make it longer so that by the time you got to the front you would feel so in pain about the sunk cost of getting there that the dollar cost mm-hmm. of acquiring extra items would seem minimal in comparison 
and you would buy extra, which is probably what happened to you. Maybe, but on the other hand, a lot of people left the line because they were like, fuck it, I'll come back later, or like, no, I'm not doing it. So That only increases it. You're just like, yes, I persevered where others failed, and now I will spend all my money on garbage, it, which, again, I bet that track jacket fucking rules. So It nice feels work. great. It looks great, and I get lots of questions at work about it. Namely, like, why would you wear a jacket that says garbage? And it's like, it's a band Your Honor, from the 90s. It's because <laughs> <laughs> they're good. <laughs> Your Honor, are we not all only happy when it rains? <sighs> um. <laughs> so I hit stop. Nah. Release the Kraken. All right. Thank you, everybody. Um. We, uh, elite cultural critics, of course, are completely uninterested in your opinions and your uh, useless, blithering tra- chatter. So uh, by no means should you direct it mm. to uh, savagebeastpod at gmail.com or at savagebeastpod on Twitter. If you do, we will block you, report you for spam. Um, I would be disgusted were one of you to attempt to review my work on iTunes um surely even if you were to somehow see the light and give it a five-star review you would do so for bad reasons as you would undoubt be unable to keep yourself from mentioning in the review you would write so thank you for sparing us all the indignity of having to deal with your attempts to do any of those things and good night good night you just blathering swine who (laughs) suckle at the teat of our musical genius i'm just kidding thanks for listening (laughs) yeah it's been great (laughs) i love you (laughs) uh mercy sweet